Please now hear God's word, Zechariah chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, its length 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him that swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots come out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, and the third white horses. And the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes to the north country, the white one goes after them, and the dappled ones go to the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, these or those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall between, be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Heldam, Tobiah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord 
your God. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. If you would, please now join me in prayer. Father, as uh, we come this time to uh, hear from your word, uh, we we thank you that you have given it to us. Uh, We thank you that you have uh, given us the scriptures. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that we have uh, far more than uh, just John and, and Romans, but we have all 66 books of your holy scripture. We pray now that you grant to us the illuminating power of your spirit, uh, that we might hear, that we might understand, and that we might respond in faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a, a phrase in our culture that uh, rings true for most of us, and that is that uh, repetition is the mother of all learning. Uh, very few of us can master a subject in a very short amount of time. Uh, years ago when I was beginning my studies at RTS, uh, the Greek textbook that we use uh, has a little section in the front where the author, Bill Mounts, uh, reminds students very few people can just pick up a language. It takes a lot of time, a lot of study, a lot of repetition. And God, uh, by his Holy Spirit, has uh, inspired the book of Zechariah so that it has repetition. Uh, It it hammers hard on uh, certain topics. And we're going to be able to see this evening uh, that we're going to address topics that have already been mentioned in the book of Zechariah, but it's going to be approached from a little bit different angle. And the three topics are sin, sovereignty, and salvation. In chapter 1, we saw that the Lord uh, called the exilic people to, to repentance. And he said, return to me and I will return to you. Then we also saw in chapter 1 that uh, God revealed to the prophet Zechariah through uh, his first night vision that God was entirely in control, that he is sovereign over all that is going on in, in his creation. And we saw that uh, by means of the, the horses, the horsemen that were sent out to patrol the earth. And then in chapter 3, we, we saw salvation, that uh, God said he's going to uh, cleanse his people's sin, take it all away in a single day. And we saw that with Joshua the high priest as he was clothed with white garments. Uh, now what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, chapters 5 and 6 under those headings of sin, sovereignty, and salvation. Chapter 5, we're going to look at it through the lens of sin. Uh, The first part of chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see how once again God teaches his people about his sovereignty. And then in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6, we will see once again that God has promised salvation for his people. So we'll start first with... Uh, Chapter 5, looking at sin. So Zechariah is still, he's prophesying and and relating these night visions at about 520 B.C. The people have come out of exile. And we we continue on in the night visions. We continue on with this uh, strange and unfamiliar uh, apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic language and imagery. And we've, we've noted previously that uh, when, the, when the scriptures use apocalyptic literature and language, uh, they are communicating spiritual truths by means of, of symbols. Uh, so these, these are not things that we would uh, 
just see with, with our eyes uh, if we were present at that time. Rather, it's, it's revealed to Zechariah, and then he in turn is going to teach the people. And so the, the next vision that he has is that of a scroll. And scrolls are, are very common in Scripture, but as we dive into this text, we see that this scroll is highly unusual. First of all, this scroll is flying by itself. That's not something we're used to seeing. Secondly, when we look at the uh, dimensions of the scroll, it is very large. It, it says in our text it is uh, 20 cubits its length and 10 cubits its width. Now, for most of us, the, the term cubit doesn't mean a whole lot any more than if I said I was going to go make coffee and I was going to make an ephah full of coffee. It, it, we don't use those terms. But a cubit is approximately 18 inches. In the ancient world, if they wanted to measure things, uh, they would measure from the elbow down to the fingertips. And so approximately 18 inches. So if you, if you do the math, this, this flying scroll is not the size of a piece of paper, but rather it's the size of a billboard, and it's flying around through the air. So this is highly unusual. Uh, Zechariah would be very interested to know what does this mean. But as we've seen in, in our study of Zechariah, there is an interpreting angel who tells us what these strange symbols mean. And he says in verse 3, he says, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. So the flying scroll is the curse. Uh, when I was serving as an intern at uh, PCA Church in, in Jasper, Tennessee, uh, our pastor had a, a line that he, was fr- he would frequently use in his preaching or teaching. And when he would come to something like this, where it says, this is the curse, he would say, is that bad? Well, it sure ain't good. If you see a, a scroll that's flying around and it's, it's titled the curse, that's not good. Whatever it is, that is not, not something uh, that we want to have any part with. And many scholars see a connection here between uh, the curse that is mentioned uh, with this scroll and the, the blessings and curses uh, that God laid upon his people in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you recall, in Deuteronomy tw- chapter 28, God promised that so long as they were faithful to him, so long as they, they walked in his ways, observed his commandments, uh, they, would be, they would be cherished, they would be lifted up in the ancient Near East. And if they failed to do so, the curse would fall upon them. And it lists all the different curses uh, that they would experience. So how would God's people walk in his ways? Well, they would obey the moral law as it's encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, Exodus chapter 20. And it it seems that what we have here is uh, that this curse that is flying around uh, is, is representative of the moral law. It's representative of, of the moral law and the need for God's people to, to be obedient to it. And we can see that because two, two different uh, representative commands are, are listed here. First, it, it talks about the one who steals. 
the one who steals will be, will be punished. And secondly, the one who swears falsely by my name. And so the, the one who steals this would be representative of the, of the second table of the law, that is, uh, sins that we commit against our neighbor. Whereas uh, swearing falsely by my name, by the name of God, would be breaking the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain. And so I believe what we have here is uh, representative of, of the whole Decalogue. And this points to the fact that there are those within the covenant community, those who have come back from exile, who are still breaking God's law. And this offers uh, sure confidence that their, their sin will be found out, that God's judgment will fall upon them if they fail to repent. Even our Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it talks about the reasons annexed to the third commandment, says that it is because the, even if we might be able to escape men's punishment, even if men do not see our sin, it is the Lord who notice, notices and takes very seriously and is much displeased with the sin of taking his name in vain. I remember a few years ago reading uh, through uh, a theology textbook uh, by Herman Bovink, who was a, a Dutch uh, reform systematic theologian, and he quotes from the, the church father Augustine. And this is a very, very famous quote that Augustine has when he's commenting on one of, one of the Psalms. And Augustine is talking about the, the practical implications of God's omniscience, the fact that God sees us, he knows us, he knows everything about us. And I'll, I'll par paraphrase, he, he says something along the lines of, when you want to sin and you don't want anybody to see you, what do you do? Well, you go to your house. Then, because you're fearful that somebody might look in the window and see you, what do you do? Well, you go into your inner room. And then he says, but for fear that someone might come upon you and might catch you in the act, what do you do? Well, you withdraw into your heart. And there in your heart, you, you, you meditate on whatever evil it might be. You, you meditate on, on how angry you are with somebody. You meditate on how you, you would want to harm someone. You meditate upon a lust. You meditate upon the, the discontentment you have with life. But he, he reminds us, God is even there. Even in your heart, you cannot withdraw. And he says, would, would you flee from God? He says, rather flee to him. That, that's the only way that we can uh, escape the judgment of God. Not by trying to flee away from him and, and put him out of our mind. He's always with us. He always knows what we're up to. But rather we flee to him in repentance and trust. And we are able to flee from our sin. Next, the interpreting angel uh, directs Zechariah to a basket. Directs him to a basket, starting in verse 5. And uh, once again, this starts out rather, rather normal, and it kind of becomes more bizarre as we read on. And there's this basket. It's a, a rather large basket. It says that it is uh, representative of the iniquity of the people. 
And then inside this basket, once you you take the lid off this basket, there is a woman inside of the basket. And it says, this is wickedness. And no sooner does Zechariah get a glimpse of what this wickedness, what woman, this wicked woman looks like, then the, the top of the basket needs to be shut back so that she doesn't escape. And it becomes a little bit even more uh, strange when there are women who have wings like storks. They, they come and they, they take this basket and they begin to, to take it away. And Zechariah wants to know, Where are you taking this basket? And we're taking it to the land of Shinar. Now, if you recall from our our study and uh, readings from the book of Genesis in the uh, morning service, uh, the land of Shinar shows up in Genesis chapter 11, where the the sons of Noah, they, they come down from the mountains of Ararat and they uh, they stay in one place and they begin to, to build a tower in the plains of Shinar. And eventually that will be the, the Tower of Babel. God will bring uh, judgment upon those people for their failure to spread out because they are uh, going against his will. Later on, uh, Babylon. Babylon is, is the land of Shinar. And any time that Babylon shows up in the scriptures, that, that's not a good place. Even in the the book of Revelation, when John is writing, uh, he talks about how in the first century there was Babylon. And by the end of the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon is destroyed. So the fact that the basket is being taken to Babylon shows that it is going to a place of judgment. It is going to a place where God is going to bring his fiery destruction upon it. And and notice one, one detail that we can glean from the text. They say that they're going to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. Now, when when Anna and I came to uh, Jackson for me to attend seminary, we we rented an apartment. We didn't build a house. Nobody builds a house when you plan on leaving very shortly. But they're going to build a house for it. And the idea is that this basket, this wickedness, it is going to the land of Shinar, it is going to Babylon, and it is not coming back. It is going to stay there. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, we know it is going to experience the judgment of God. It's going to experience the judgment of God. Now, there is a, uh, one commentator who makes a very interesting and sober comment uh, about this passage that we have before us. And that is, when we look at the uh, wickedness, when we look at this woman, she has a face. And he notes, it's not just sin in the abstract that's going to be judged. It's not just sin in the abstract that is going to go to hell. It is people with real faces, people with real families. And we we must never we must never shy away from warning people about the judgment to come. We must never for a moment try to uh, change our our views upon Holy Scripture and God's law in order to accommodate ourselves to the culture. The culture is always changing. God's Word 
does not. And the most loving thing that we can do is remind people of the wrath to come and remind them that God has made full provision in Christ. Do not simply uh, try to try to what we must do is flee from sin and flee to Christ. That brings us to our second point, and that is sovereignty. As we turn our attention to uh, chapter 6, we are, are dealing with how God is intimately involved with his creation. Uh, it says that chariots come out from between two mountains, and they're mountains of bronze. And if you recall in chapter 1, there were horsemen that were sent out who were sent out to patrol the earth and to, to give an account of all that was going on. Now here, these chariots are not simply going to give an account of what is going on, but rather these chariots are going to bring destruction upon those whom they visit. And they come out from two mountains of bronze, and there, there have been many different interpretations of, of how, to, how to explain these mountains of bronze. But I think perhaps the, the most uh, attractive interpretation is that it is uh, representative of the, of the entrance to heaven, it is the, the entrance to the heavenly realm. If you recall with uh, Solomon's temple, it had great uh, pillars at the front. And it seems that these uh, chariots, they're coming out from heaven and they're going forth into, into the world to conduct their business. And there are, there are several different colored horses and as you remember, the, with the book of Revelation, uh, John, as he, is, as he is writing the Apocalypse, is drawing heavily upon uh, previous Old Testament books, such as the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah. And some of these same colors show up in Revelation chapter 6, where, uh, for instance, the, the black horse in Revelation chapter 6 goes forth and it brings uh, famine and destruction upon the land. The white horse in Revelation symbolizes uh, conquering, the, the sureness of success. And there's also, a, uh, there's also the pale rider in Revelation chapter 6, which brings death. Now, if, if John is drawing upon Zechariah to, uh, to illustrate what he is writing for the first century church... Uh, it, it's a possibility that these same colors uh, line up with Revelation and here in Zechariah chapter 6. In which case, the, the black horse would be going forth to bring destruction, to bring famine, and the white horse symbolizes that it's, it's a sure thing. It's going to be accomplished. And the dappled horse may correspond to the, the pale rider bringing death. Now, where, where, are, these, where are, these horse, are these chariots going? Well, it says they're going to the, the north country and the southern country. For God's people, the, the north country was always associated with, with Babylon. You would have to, to go up from Jerusalem. You went around the Arabian desert, and then you went to Babylon. And uh, Israel's famous enemy to the south would be Egypt. The, both of these would be uh, foes before, before God's people. But Zechariah is shown in this night vision that these chariots, these chariots bringing destruction, they're going to go forth and they're going to take care of both Egypt to the south and Babylon to the north. 
And so just as we saw in chapter 1, God is is not simply uh, disengaged from His creation. Rather, He's intimately involved with it. And He'll see to it that those who oppress God's people are, are dealt with. This is in direct contradiction to uh, a false view of, of God in the scriptures uh, known as deism, in which God is simply the one who created uh, the world and he's, he's the one who's the watchmaker. He made it, he wound it up, and then he set it on the table and walked away. God's not like that. God is, is the God of providence. He is the one who, who, who sustains his creatures. He, he governs and preserves them, all his creatures and all their actions. And so not only would this have been a great uh, comfort and aid to the faith of this post-exilic uh, community, uh, but it's a, a great comfort and aid to us too. That God knows what he's doing. And even when we don't see the full picture, uh, we can trust that he will bring about his good purposes uh, for our good and his glory. Which brings us to our third and final point, uh, verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6 speak of the coming Messiah. They speak very clearly of Jesus Christ who will come. Zechariah is, well, the book of Zechariah now is at a a turning point. Uh, As we've been studying our way through this book, uh, Zechariah has almost always begun his uh, each section and each chapter by saying, I lifted up my eyes. I saw something new. But now we go back to the more straightforward uh, prose narrative. The word of the Lord came to me. And Zechariah is told to, to go and speak with uh, three, three men who came out of the exile, who came back from Babylon and back to Jerusalem. And he's to go to them and, and collect silver and gold and fashion it into a crown. So far, so good. But what happens next would have been very uh, jarring, uh, very strange for a, uh, an original hearer to, to take note of. It says that once he makes this crown, in verse 11 it says, he is to go and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he's going to take a crown and put it on the head of the high priest. Now, if you recall uh, King Uzziah, King Uzziah who thought it would be a good idea to uh, attempt to take up duties that were only reserved for Levitical priests, it didn't end well. He, he was struck with, with leprosy and, and it uh, was upon him to the end of his days. But here now, there is a, it seems, a merging of priest and king. This is not a a political uh, move that's taking place, but rather it is symbolic and it is representative of the one who is to come. It says that the branch is going to come. The branch is going to build the temple of the Lord. Royal honor shall be upon him. He shall sit on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and a council of peace between the two of them. The, the idea is that there is one coming, one who is greater than Joshua, who there will be a merging of both the kingship and the priesthood. 
There, there is one who is going to sit on the throne and he's going to execute both of these offices. And there's not going to be a discord between these two offices. Rather, there will be peace between them. There will be unity between them. And as we have seen so clearly throughout our study of the book of Zechariah, which brings forth Christ in a very clear manner, this does indeed point forward to Jesus Christ, who is both priest and king. He's also prophet. So he, he is the one who, who reigns upon God's throne, who has made perfect sacrifice before God. He has offered up himself. He makes continual intercession for us. And he also rules as king. He, he subdues us to himself. He, he rules and defends us and defends us against all his and our enemies. And so the book of Zechariah is very interested to give this post-exilic audience great hope that God is the one who will bring about their salvation, that God is the one who is entirely sovereign and knows all that is taking place in their life and experience, and that God is the one who calls them to repentance, to flee from their sin and put their hope in the coming branch. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do indeed thank you for this clear passage about the one who is both priest and king. And Lord, we thank you that you have installed your king on Mount Zion, that there will be no changing of the kingship, that there will be no changing of the priesthood, but rather that you have made full provision for your people, not only to have their, their sins forgiven, uh, to, but to receive adoption as sons of God. We thank you and pray that you would continue to bless our study of this book. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.